Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. And McDougal. How are you, hey, mate? How are you, mate? All right? Good, mate. I mean, I see you around the traps a lot. Um, but my best memory of you is uh, we were just talking about it on the way back from the gym. Uh, the 1998 was the first experience of me when I first started sponsoring um, State of Origin when uh, Super League Wars just finished yeah. and uh, Tui's had pulled out. And uh, I took Wizard took over the sponsorship, and you were in the '98 side with uh, Tommy. Yeah, I was. Yeah. And were you, did you play in the Super League period? I didn't play in the Super League period. I uh, got injured. I was meant to play in 97, but yep. I got injured. So 98 was obviously the first year I played, which was even more special as I was uh, the only player that year to make his debut in Origin for New South Wales. So um, you made your debut in 98? 98, oh, yeah. Debut. My debut year too yeah, as yeah, a sponsor. Exactly. Double so, debut. And, mate, and it just – I know I'm going to talk about your business, but I just want to quickly because you know, a yeah. lot of people are fascinated by the difference between Origin today. 40 today yeah. compared to 40 then. And like like everything today is yeah. super vetted, but footy then was quite cool. Like I mean, it was I mean, you could punch someone in the head yeah. <laughs> if they punched you, but but that's not the only reason it was cool. It was less scrutinised. Yeah. Give me, give me, give me your views. Yeah, on well, that. I was very lucky. I come into um, professional football in the mid '90s, and then I finished up uh, in 2012. So I essentially played over three decades, and um, you know, I got to enjoy you know all the different, I suppose, parts of them decades. And for me, the '90s were the best. Um, there was no mobile phones, so blokes could behave badly and. Uh, it was seen as something that uh, no one else could um, really bang them down for. These days, you can't even go out and have a beer with your mates without someone taking a photo or videoing you. Um, and the other thing was the game wasn't as scrutinised. It was more open. There wasn't as much technical review and science in the game, so there wasn't as much wrestling. The game was more free-flowing. It was more fast. It was more energetic. and More uh, natural. Sort more of. natural. There was footballers in the game. Yeah, now yeah. there's robots. So, you know, I, I was given the option to play again by Wayne Bennett in 2012, but um, I decided against it because I'd got to a stage where my role as an outside back had no longer been scoring tries and trying to take my opponent on one-on-one had become a role of running out of dummy half and wrestling. So uh, the game became very sterile and very robotic, and I just felt it was time to go. Is it true? A lot of people want to know this. Is it true <laughs> that Mad Dog Dukes, yeah. that was your nickname, Mad yeah, Dog, yeah, yeah. used to sit in the dressing sheds before the game yeah. and whack himself? No. Uh, well, I don't know. Hopefully, I didn't whack myself, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, my man, dog yourself. <laughs> uh, some guys do that to relax before they play. But that was way before the game. Yeah, I actually... I was celebrate for a week before that made me angry, but... Uh, but no, look, there's some good stories. And, you know, Andrew Johns, who's probably a bit um, crazy, as we all know, um, knew that I had some good stories on him. So he had to make uh, discredit my legitimacy. So he told everyone I was crazy so they wouldn't believe my stories. But it was actually quite good, the stories. I remember meeting, you know, opposition players and they'd be looking at me going, this bloke's not a full picnic. He short a few sandwiches. So uh, certainly helped me and I embellished the stories as well. And 
being mad was uh, the style of football that I played. I was very aggressive and, you know, didn't want to leave anything on, on off the field. Now, I just want to take you back. To, I mean, you're not just, and I don't mean this in a condescending way relative to anybody else in football, but you're not just a rugby league player. I mean, you're, you studied as well. Yeah. So what did you study? Yeah, so um, originally how I ended up in Newcastle was um, I couldn't get into Sydney University to do economics law. Um, that's what my mum wanted me to do. She wanted me to study. My dad was uh, lucky enough to play in three grand finals himself and play for New South Wales um, and play at the highest level in rugby league. But um, he um, made me realise that rugby league is a very short-term career. Um, doesn't always go the way that you want it. So he was insistent that I studied. So the deal was if I wanted to play footy, I had to study. So I didn't um, want to not do economics law. I couldn't get into Sydney Uni. So I moved to Newcastle and that's why I started studying economics law. Um, after a year of studying uh, economics law, um, I was more attracted to the numbers and the, uh, the financial side. So I moved into a, an economics finance degree. I ended up finishing with that. Also went on to study a master's of business and MBA, uh, studied psychology, sports, nutrition. So I'd train during the day and at night I'd go to university. So you would have been weird. one of the few guys in the side, the Newcastle side who did that. I mean, there wouldn't be too many players generally who were doing that. No, I was the only guy in the team at that time that was going to university at night. And, um, yeah, it was balance. Yeah, well, look, mate, 17 years of playing first <laughs> grade. Sure well, yeah, I played, look, I played first grade for close to 20 years. I was competitive football. And they actually gave you money to go to uni. So yeah, I couldn't yeah. understand why guys, when I played over that 20-year period, didn't go to uni. So... Um, but probably because they're now parents telling them to. Yeah, and I think, you I know, think that's it's a big about difference. balance. Life balance is a big thing. So football is a very physical sport, and I found that the study actually gave me a, a lot of value in my football career as well. It actually made me, I suppose, made me more present. It actually made me able to problem solve in different ways to other guys. It actually challenged a different side of my brain. Well, that's what I want to ask you because I think because we have had um, uh, Todd Sampson and we have talked, have had a lot of discussions about, you know, the neuroscience and the way the brain yeah. works. and. But I'd like to ask you, how important or how, how significant do you think that playing rugby league and training your brain that way, yep. that's all the discipline and, you know, the ability to be able to pace yourself, the ability to be able to manage yourself on a football field, know when to explode, when not to explode, and same with, you know, with all the training program. And then juxta, in juxtaposed to that is your um, study. Um, how do those two things, do you think, influenced what you're doing today with, with your man for your man shakes, man bars and your yeah. general fitness business. I mean, yeah. how do you think those worked for you? Yeah, look, I think um, balance is so important and, you know, hence why, you know, I've got into the health and fitness space because now we're working longer hours than ever. We're not actually taking care of ourselves from a health point of view. And for me, it's about balance. So it's about training both sides of your brain. So, you know, exercise trains one part of your brain. We know the, the, the value that gives you with the oxygen and, and the endorphins and whatnot. But the study also creates another part of your brain, which is very important. And as we age, we need to be challenging our brains. It's, it's mind fitness. It's a mind gym. So doing jigsaw puzzles or, or trying to learn a new language or just studying something new. So I think that balance is very important. It gave me skills. As I said, that I was able to observe the game and learn the game and, and take some of them attributes I learned from university, which was commitment and some other skills and combine them with rugby league and it sort of made a better business person as well as a better athlete. So just to round it off, yep. round off the Adam McDougall story, married, yep, family, married. tell me about well, it. Yeah, yeah, so uh, I uh, didn't want to have kids until I'd finished football. So um, I turned 40 this year and I was blessed enough to have a baby daughter born on the 2nd of January. So got in just before my 40th well, blessed birthday. Blessed to have a wife to a lady. Yeah, to life that. that was married someone with a head like mine. So I'm batting over. So uh, Way over, mate. Way I've seen, I met but, your wife. Um, she's a good sword. Yeah, I mean, you she, smashed them. And she's Throw smart. Out, so she, she always says that she's the brains of the organisation and don't think I'm tall because I stand on her shoulders. So <laughs> um, she works uh, really hard and, and, you know, she's a great part of that team as well. And, you know, for me, I want to be a role model. I want to be around to see my daughter and walk her down the aisle one day. And 
You know, I come back to this thing, you know, when my best mate died of a heart attack, he died because he was waiting for tomorrow to happen to get healthy and fit and it never happened. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to help blokes make today happen and get fit. Mate, thanks very much. Perfect. Thanks for your time today. I had a great time. Thanks, guys. we got a legend in the room today, Tom Carroll. G'day, Tom. How you going, mate? <laughs> And he's a legend, certainly a legend from my point of view because when I was a kid growing up, um, I'm a bit older than Tom, but he was so, so well regarded as a surfer. Mm. He was a legend and I'm like 10 years older than him and everybody was talking about him when I was growing up and I was mm. surfing. So we often talk about inspiration and motivation to do business and what are the virtues and the characteristics you need to have to be successful at business and there are a number of them and one of the big ones, of course, is courage and, and, a, and a concept of being fearless, although I often say that Fearless is uh, not like being reckless, in other words, having no regard for the consequences. Fearless is about understanding the risk and being then prepared or have enough courage to actually take that risk on. And what we got here is a guy who's, you know, he's not a not certain not a titan in stature, but he's, you know, he's a he's a well regarded, tough surfer who rides waves probably 10, 15 times bigger than himself and as Tom Carroll. And that takes a lot of courage. And I I guess I want to know whether you, Tom, and maybe in the beginning it started off as fearless, but what's happened over time? I mean, why do you still do it? What are you, 54 now? 54. So you're yeah. 54 years mm. of age. You look fit as Mally Bull. <laughs> he, looks, he looks like he could go and play halfback alongside Alfie Langer and fucking score as many tries <laughs> as Alfie Langer. I mean, it's, he does. He looks very fit for his age. Mm. Most guys who are sports and retired by this time. They don't mm. do anything. Mm. Tom's still riding big waves. What does it take, mate? I just love it, you know. Just is that really... Purely for the love of it, uh, and and the, you know just the the engagement. I'm, I think as a surfer, I'm incredibly lucky to have a sport that's in front of me that I can do as a as a it's a leisure thing. It, it can be applied as a competitive with a competitive element to it, but also I'm being invo- involved with nature. And you know, I don't know, probably everyone in this room right now and everyone who's listening understands the feeling they get from hitting the ocean and what that feels like when you come out. So um, as a surfer, when we engage in the ocean with full physical engagement, and, I'm, and I've got to take full atten- pay full attention to the ocean. And I've, over, incrementally over time, I've de- developed this really deep relationship with the ocean. And that's, you know, started surfing at seven years of age. And uh, that deep relationship sort of carries me in many ways. So I, <laughs> when I get a chance, and I've got great relationships around the world, places like Hawaii, which I love going to, it's kind of like a second home, where, you know, I kind of, my whole focus is actually, you know, still challenging my body, chill, still challenging my mind in, in, in intense situations in the ocean. Explain um, one. Explain to me, like, what, I mean, explain to people listening, what is yeah. an intense situation? Is it like you, you get you on your board shorts or you put your wedding on, whatever it is, and you jump on your board, and where does it become intense? <laughs> oh, when you present with a... You know, thirty foot wall of water come towards yeah. you. You know, and what does that, that mean? That moment? Th- I mean, most of yeah. we watch yeah. them well, television. Well, there's a shark swimming around you. <laughs> sharks, yeah. Well, sharks are in there too, but uh, you know, they don't really want us. But uh, it's a thirty foot of thirty foot of water. Wall of water. When we're yeah, thousands of tons. There's, there's thousands of tons of water. I mean, it doesn't care who you are. Mm. So, um, and what can it do can, to you? It can drown us. It can drown us or pin us against the reef. Uh, the, you know. Uh, it can also offer an incredible ride. 
So you've got these. <laughs> so do those these. first two go through your mind? Though? What goes through your mind? So you're paddling out. Mm. And you, I mean, most of us would paddle and see a 30-foot wall of water coming towards us mm. and we think of tsunami and uh, getting pinned mm. to the roof. That's what I'd be thinking. Mm. And or, you know, all the other negative mm. things. Mm. Do, you, do you sort of say, okay, they're the things that are going to happen, but I'm going to think about how great this is going to be? Or how do you get over that? Well, it's kind of uh, it's amazing. I, <clears throat> I've got all this great stored-up sort of information in my body you know, over years and sort of incrementally getting myself into this situation for one, right? Yep. And I can actually put myself into the situation. I try to keep myself, as, you know, in good shape so I can challenge myself in it. And I think as I've gotten older, uh, you know, I'm 54 like, like we talked about and, um, you know, my adrenaline pumps through my body differently now compared to what it did. And like you were talking about courage and recklessness before uh, and, and, and risk assessment and so on like that. I mean, I'm way, way better, way better at assessing the risk today and, and diving in there with courage today than what I did before. I was pretty reckless before. Do you use mm. meditation in some format? I mean, because surfing is very meditative. Mm. That's what a lot of people say. Um, do you use some form of meditation to, to calm... The adrenaline down because adrenaline is a good feeling, but adrenaline can be a bad thing yeah. because it can, you mm. know, you can, I know when you take off, you jump up in the wave, and all of a sudden your legs start to feel a bit wobbly because mm. adrenaline can suck suck the the energy out of you. Um, do you meditate some way? Yeah, yeah, meditation is an extremely important part of the whole equation, especially with the ocean and big ocean. I think uh, for me, anyway, and I know that uh, quite a few of the other surfers do it and practice it, and I think. Uh, you know, it's good for anyone. I mean, the old days, they used to smoke a hot one before. They yeah, went. that's it. But today, they well, meditate. We did, yeah. yeah. And we did, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I remember. Yeah, I remember. Like, oh, I was a kid too once. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's where you that take the fear out pretty quickly. But Yeah, yeah. You can do yeah, anything. You get lost out there too. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might not catch any waves. Just. <laughs> yeah. Where's, where's he gone? Where's Mark <laughs> Tom gone? But uh, it's like, uh, no, the meditation, yeah, just it helps us get in touch with who we are deep. Deep, at a deeper um, place, yeah. Um, but it has to be done regularly, whether it be – and it, I can get in touch with that whilst I'm in the water, come back to the breath. It's so really come back that, to the breath. Because, I mean, you know, we get a lot of small business owners and business mm. owners generally listening to us and, you know, they get inspired by people like you. But mm. what we try to do is see how you – know, I'd be interested in what your views are, how um, people can apply what you're going through because, you know, in business sometimes people – small business especially – Startups, they're looking at everything's a 30-foot wave to them. It's huge. Yeah, I <laughs> can imagine. And they're yeah. saying, like, well, yeah. Tom, like, how do I, you know, what do you do to get through this? What can I use, you're mm. telling me, what can I use to make my business on a daily basis get through these 30-foot waves? I mean, what would you say to them? I would make it their, their most urgent uh, kind of, um, I wouldn't say it's a big achievement, but I'd make it their urgent um, sort of, make it urgent that they need to practice um, meditation. It's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I know it sounds completely opposite, make it urgent, but really um, make it a daily practice. A daily practice. Come back to yourself. Uh, give yourself a space, you know, especially our mind, because it all comes from our mind. Everything, you know, all, you know and we're going to get that right. So if we start in a startup business and we've got to make big decisions on a daily basis, you know, each decision you're making at that point in the day, every day, is going to change the direction of this startup. It's like it's, and, and you're you're at this, you're steering the ship. So that's your mind is making the decision here. And so if the mind's not right, if we haven't got a steady um, relationship 
with ourselves uh, and we go into a, you know these you know situations, you're not going to have a steady outcome. Been a blast. Thanks great, very much. Great opportunity. Yeah, it's good to meet you. Our special guest today is pilot Captain Richard DeCrepney, who safely landed an A380 in Singapore after an engine exploded. Morning, Richard. Morning, Mark. Thank How you, you for having me. Just explain to me straight up what actually happened. What were you aware of at the time that you noticed the so-called explosion? Four minutes after takeoff, everything is going normally. We're just settling down into a climb when there were two explosions. Boom, boom. It's like a backfire in your car, and the backfire in the car doesn't scare you, and it didn't scare us. But it was that we've been trained enough to recognise that as a sign that the engine has certainly failed, and perhaps catastrophically. So in our case, it had, it had exploded, and pieces had cut 750 wires. We had 500 impacts on the aeroplane, 21 out of 22 systems on the A380, which has 4 million parts, $400 million. 21 systems were compromised and we then carried out threat and error management which was to identify what was wrong try and fix it if we can't fix it try and mitigate it so we we spent an hour and a half to work out how we were going to land the aircraft what we had left and then when we landed which was two hours after the explosion we had two hours on the ground to maximize the safety of the passengers to 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 minimize injury and to get them off in what was a very stressful and toxic environment outside the aircraft on the runway so the qf-32 incident took four hours for the incident itself and then it proceeded further on in the terminals later and with customer care um, and that's really probably what influenced the public perception of qf-32 was the the disclosure and the guarantee and the public perception of the incident so how, how did you and your co-pilots and i guess engineers and crew, you know, how, how, what did you do immediately? So what was the first thing that went into your mind? You went, whoa, explosion, problem. Uh, then what did you think? What did you do? Well, Is some people might get startled. When the unexpected <clears throat> happens, you might startle and freeze or, or try and run away or fight. And we, we are trained to recognise those signs and then go into a drill. It's a well-trained drill. We have to be recertified. Unlike people in other industries, we are recertified, capable to fly seven times a year. And so in the simulators, which we do four times a year, we practise engine failures. We hear them. We feel them in the simulator. This explosion was unlike anything that you could simulate in an aeroplane in an aeroplane simulator but it put us into the mindset where we started our procedure so we started the procedure which was to stabilize the aircraft make sure it's flying if you don't keep the aircraft flying or if you don't aviate then everything else becomes redundant because you might be if you get into the checklist too quickly you might be halfway through the first checklist when the aircraft impacts the ground inverted so we had to stabilize the aircraft make sure it was flying and then we had to make sure we weren't going to keep flying into the mountains or that we were clear of them. And then we start communicating with people and we run the checklists. So there's very little time or there's very few occasions when you should really rush and, and, and just ignore everything else uh, in an aeroplane. The only time you need to really react instinctively and extraordinarily fast as if the aircraft's on fire. Now, we were not on fire initially. So we followed the instructions. We followed the logic and the checklist and the threat and error management. It took time. But on this computerised aircraft, 
we have to because a computerized aircraft will turn on and off systems. It's not like a tractor that you can see everything working and know what you have. We had to work out what was working, what we had left and how we would use it to land. So that took time. So again, it was all procedure driven. Did you, as the pilot, as the captain, connect back to the rest of the staff on the plane? How did it work? Um, I'll answer that last bit first so I don't forget it. We Often we couldn't talk to the cabin because the communications were such, the way the communication system worked, it didn't work. So we we sent Mark back to talk to the cabin crew manager, Michael Von Reith, an exceptional person leading the cabin, an example of where expertise in the cabin saved passengers' lives. So we couldn't talk to him directly. He didn't talk to us on the intercom once in four hours. But this is where when you have roles and tasks and people know their responsibilities, if there is trust, we can, we can trust Michael to do the job in the cabin, to lead the cabin. We, there's trust through verification, so we are, we are checking occasionally to make sure things are, are okay, but Michael always had it under control. So we delegated and we trusted Michael to do his job. He delegated, he trusted, everything worked. Uh, to, to just quote one more thing, the QF-32 incident would have been even more successful, although there were no injuries, so it's, it's a facetious comment. But the most safest operation in my airline is if we have never flown with anyone before, the pilots or the cabin crew, because then we say, look, I don't know you, Mark. I don't know your skill set. I don't know what you do. And frankly, I don't care. I just want you to follow the standard procedures. And if you do that, then I know what you will do and when. And if you just do that, we can, we can do our, our job without ever even communicating. So when the communications failed on QF32 between the cabin and the cockpit, and that's where the teamwork and having skilled people, they all come together under a trusting system and you can take a very complex high-risk environment where things are going wrong, the unexpected's happening, everyone's doing their roles and tasks and procedures and it all comes together. That's what QF32 was. It was excellence in teamwork. It wasn't me. I just let the people do their job. Once it landed, what happened? Some people would say it was more complex on the ground than in the air. Because when we stopped and eight fire engines surrounded us, we, we tried to shut down all the engines, but one engine wouldn't shut down. So all the, the two emergency defence procedures to shut down engine number one had been, all the wires had been cut. Um, if one more wire had been cut in that aircraft, I was advised by the Transport Safety Bureau, we probably wouldn't have made it down because of the behaviour of engine number one. That gets technical. Um, so we had four tonnes of fuel pouring over the hot Singapore runway. We had hot brakes, brakes smoking. We had an engine wouldn't shut down. We have 440 passengers in an aircraft where all the exit doors were higher than just about any other aircraft in the world. If we had evacuated, we would have put 15% or about um, 60 people into hospital. Uh, I think we possibly would have people not here today because the slides go down at 45 degrees onto concrete and um, it would have been really nasty. In fact, the engineer at my airline while we are in the air, he was doing everything to get buses and um, stairs to the aircraft because he hoped, he was praying that we wouldn't evacuate. To evacuate unnecessarily would be a disaster. 
And the decision we made to whether to evacuate or not was the most complex decision I've ever made in my life. It's very easy to say, and it's a cheap out to just evacuate and say, yes, throw them out. But we would have been putting them out onto, onto fuel that is high resistance. So when you walk through fuel, it's like walking over carpet, going to the elevator lift and pressing the button and getting a spark. You can spark yourself <clears throat> just walking through kerosene and we're in a 35 degree hot runway. If they missed the kerosene or if they got down the slide without her being hurt, they would have then slipped on the kerosene. If they didn't do that, they might have walked in front of engine number one that was still running and get sucked into it. If they ran away from the aircraft, maybe they get run over by a fire engine. I could keep going with lots more threats. So we were doing threat and error management and decision analysis, and we decided to keep the people on board. And I have had feedback from the highest people in the industry to say that was the most fascinating decision, and they absolutely agreed with what we did. Excellent. Thanks very much, Richard. Thank you. Been awesome. Thanks, Mark. We've got Guillaume Brahimi here. Good morning, Mark. It's funny how food, like 15 years ago, you wouldn't watch a food show. Maybe you did. We used to have that... uh, Gast, uh, there's a French Gabriel, guy, Gabriel, Gabriel Gatti. Gabriel, Gabriel, Gabriel Gatti. Around, He's still around. Yeah, yeah, but that was sort of about as much as you ever got. But now we have food channels and food's yeah. such an important part of life. I mean, what, what's brought all this about? What do you well, I, I think social media, big part of it. You know, uh, you we, which business you can be reviewed on the spot and be sure around the world. You know, like uh, mm. every night in my restaurant, I will have somebody doing a review live on TripAdvisor, on all these... Um, uh, website, so that's that's, and you know everybody's a foodie now. Mm. Uh, all these reality TV yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's two variety of show who help a lot my industry. Uh, firstly, there's uh, the Rich Tang shows, all about showing the great world we live in. Sure. Uh, uh, Food Safari. It's there's no competition. It's about actually uh, admiring and. Uh, you know, seeing all these people from the baker to the butcher to the grower, so showing the great country we live in and also the the rest of the world. And after that, you've got the the reality TV with a contest. Mm. Everybody um, wants to be on MKR. MKR, uh, MasterChef, mm. uh, Hot Plate. and I love MKR. Uh, oh, they're great, they're great. Yeah. But, you know, uh, and... And it's uh, I've been on these shows, so yeah. I can't say they're bad because they... they Huge amount of followers, huge amount of followers. But we need to cross, there is a line, and you're not a chef. You know, being a chef is much more than just being on a reality TV show. Yeah. Okay? Mm. Um, And, you know, I started cooking 33 years ago, and when when I started cooking reality, being a chef was not very... Mm, uh, fashionable yeah. thing, and well, tell I us always about it. remember. Can you go, can you go back thirty yeah, I come from a family of of doctors, and and you know, a chef. Mum, very good cook. Dad wouldn't be able to cook an egg. Uh, <laughs> but 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 just to understand, you know, I come from France. France got a, you know, rich history. Well, you know, I, I jump around, but but I remember arriving in Australia and going to find bread, and the only bread I could find was a bread slice with an expiry date. You know, that's <laughs> an expiry date. My grandmother, till the day she died, and she died in 98, was going to get bread for the breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. For herself, she was eating by herself. She used to have a quarter of a baguette yeah. at each time. Yeah. And that's the way 
That's the way 80% of the French people do. My dad will go buy the, the cheese. That's his job on a Saturday. He goes to the market. He will go buy a wash wine in, let's say, in a six arrondissement, but he know the best blue is in a 12 arrondissement. So he will spend two hours to go buy. And, and he's not a, a cook. Yeah, exactly. But that's the way we live. Yeah. So when I say I wanted to be a cook, firstly, I was very lucky because I was 14 and I knew what I wanted to do. Huge relief for my parents. I was never going to be a rod scholar. And what about a rugby player, weren't you? Oh, I wish I was. Finding a career I wish, in rugby? I, I wish I was, but we used to get paid a, a case of VB when I was playing. So, <laughs> I, I would, uh, No, but I love cooking. I love, I, love, I love the restaurant industry. I love... Actually, it's a whole concept I love. I love making people happy. Mm. That's what the hospitality is about. You know, we... Uh, you can call celebrity chef, whatever, but, but at the end of the day, my joy is when I see my restaurant full of happy face and seeing the empty plate. I know it sounds cliche, but seeing a plate who's been not leak, but use a bread to finish the sauce, for me, I've done my job. So I've got a pretty, no, but you know I what I mean? So, so I've got a pretty easy job, you know, like we, we, we're not saving the world, but we make people happy. And that's really important. And, 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 and what, so you're saying though, do you think that's important though, Guillaume, to be successful? Because everyone in this world is all about success. You say successfulness is actually um, the outcome. That is you appreciating somebody else's um, wiping the plate with the bread. Is that yeah, what success yeah, is? It's about making lots of money. No, no so, so that's my happiness. Yeah. And my happiness is based on that of making people happy and seeing my restaurant full and seeing my plate empty. But what makes me happy also is I've got about 140 staff. So all of these 140 staff, some of them pay school fees, some of them pay education, some of them pay rent, some of them pay mortgage. So I, I believe I am part of the Australian economy. You know, I contribute a big part of it. Um, and... Uh, but being successful financially, well, I have to be successful financially, so I need to make the business work because if it doesn't work, if it doesn't make money, at the end of the day, it's a business. And if a business doesn't make money, you need to close it very quickly. Sure. It's a huge amount of um, gravity in what you do, and there's a lot of it as well. It's not just the weight of it, but there's a lot of things happening. How do you feel, find time to be Guillaume Brahimi, just the guy? <sighs> Or is that well, you? Does that define you? Are those Mark, things defining you? The, the, the hardest thing for me is to find the balance. Mm. And that's, that's, that's unbelievable because you, you know, there's a cliche of saying, you know, when you're happy at work, you might be difficult in your personal life or vice versa. Tell me about it. Vice versa. I know, I know. Well, <laughs> ask my son. He's standing there right there. So, so my... This is, this is our uh, quality time. <laughs> <laughs> Think of my quality time. Yeah, yeah. So you'll be able to do this with Loic one day. That's yeah. uh, your son. He yeah, spends yeah. quality time across the table. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah. And, and, and the problem is I can be very selfish not not with me, but with my family in a way. When I'm happy at work and the restaurant's busy, I I, I can work seven, fourteen days straight. It doesn't bother me. Like when I'm mm. in a mood, but it bothers everybody else. That's right. In machine, but you don't see it. Can you that, do both? Uh, is it possible? I mean, well, I, I don't think it's possible. My view is, you can't do all those things you're doing in your business, or my business, and do the other job very as very, very well. Well, do you know, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's, got, who's a very successful restaurateur in New York 
And I was saying, how do you manage all of that? And, and, and he said to me, I do my diary and I do 25% family. And, and, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but that's yeah, what he, yeah. he does and he sticks to it. Fills the diary up for the week. <laughs> for the year. <laughs> for the year. year. So 25% family, 25% friends, 25% business, and 25% himself. It's pretty low weighting to business, isn't it? 25% business. I don't think it's enough. Yeah, for yeah. Business, for me, I can't. Yeah, yeah. I know, but like, so I said to myself, well, my business is, is 90, <laughs> so... Ninety-five, yeah. yeah. So, but you know, like yeah. it's all. I, I, but you got it. He's done a conscious thing. That's a very conscious thing. I couldn't operate my life where I have to walk. It's around. a very Buddhist. I, you know, I can't he's a do Buddhist, that. and he's very yeah. same. Well, well, but, but me, what I, you know, like it nah. takes a passion. Like you're a Frenchman. Like you, you can't sort of sit with a book. I can drive in the but quarters. But I'm trying. And, I'm trying to get better. Like, uh, and the way of, I'm doing that is, if I'm with my children, I am with my children. If I decide to take time with them. Doesn't matter what's happened at work. I can be on my phone checking or oh, who's at the restaurant. That's it. You decide to do tonight, not be at work, be with your children. It's okay. And I want to thank you, by the way, and I haven't had a chance to thank you publicly, but for putting me and my dad and my sons yeah. in your book. Yeah. Um, and but what's the name of the book? Is it Guillaume? So food, uh, food, food for family. Food, food for family. Yeah. So and the, uh, I really appreciate. So I did it. that with Sancha, yeah. my wife, and 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 the idea was um, uh, we did the first one was food for friends. Yeah. And I did that uh, with Sunshine. That was uh, dedicated to my dear friend Chris O'Brien, the professor yep. Chris O'Brien, who passed away from a brain tumor. And I wanted to give the money. I was a director of Lifehouse at RPA. And I said, well, I'm going to do that because I think it was a very important uh, thing. And, and looking at the book, I think about him, and it's a, it's a, it's a really good thing. It's not, it's not a big deal, but I think anybody who's listening to this and wants to become a restaurateur, there's a full suite of things you need to do to be successful in this industry. And a lot of it is about doing something really for nothing. I mean, like doing the book, spending the time, getting the photography, producing the book, publishing it. And, you know, oh, yeah, it's, I mean, you, these things, I mean, I noticed that Neil Perry, for example, has got a, some books on his counter yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. These are all part of the full suite of things you need to do to, to do well in your industry. Even in financial services, what I do, I do, I write books too, but it's... Come in here and do on the podcast, we don't get po- paid. It's the same thing, podcasts. I mean, this yeah. is all part of the full suite of things. It's not just putting your hat on as a chef, going and cook the meal and well, think yeah, you're going to walk there, out. There's, you know, there's a fine line of I could have only Guillaume in Paddington and just do that, don't do anything else and cook there five days a week and two days off. Life could be much simpler. Like Aldo used to do. Like yeah, Aldo yeah, used to do yeah, when it was Darcy's. Yeah, you yeah, play golf every uh, mad yeah, golfman. And you, you just do that. Yeah. But you know what? I've got a little bit of an entrepreneur in me and I'm like, you know, it's really hard to say no when somebody offers you a good deal. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you, uh, it's quite good for the ego to be in demand, you know, and, 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 and all I did is, you know, for your family. Do you want to be successful for your family? And the problem is when you open a second restaurant, after that, two, three or four, it's, you got the recipes, so you just keep doing them. And that's how you build your, your enterprise and your, yeah. and your empire. Yeah. And, you know, the real successful guys in your industry out there are all doing the same thing. There's you, Neil, there's uh, Matt. Matt, yeah. There's three I know, and they've all got a similar model, yeah. a very similar model, and they all work their asses off. Everybody's working a million hours a week. Um, and some of the businesses are probably flagship and yeah. not that financially successful, but still flagship, and others are probably not flagship but are much more successful in terms of the dollars. And 
put them all together, the mix is right. Yeah. Guillaume Brahimi, uh, good mate of mine, great mate of my family's. Been Thanks. a great pleasure. Thanks, Mark. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris. And find out more at markboris.com.au. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.